0: Let me show you Africa as an entrepreneur. Africa is a fundamental part of the global economy. There are people building businesses in Africa, continental businesses that are huge businesses. So it's a vibrant, young market with lots of energy, talent and skills. What can I do? What role can I play? What is my purpose? When we put our faith and our trust in God, He is the master strategist and always directs our path.
1: God went off to the very thing that could become a mammon stronghold in my life. He said he wants that.
0: And every time it gets too difficult, I basically say, you are the one, this is your business, God. You will get the glory.
1: Uh, there's a way the world
0: does business and there's the way we do business. So come, come see that Africa. The size of our continent, along with our diverse cultures, provide us with rich insights into God and his creativity. We are excited to highlight the many influential voices of innovators and entrepreneurs across Africa. We will also feature some entrepreneurs from around the world who we think have important things to say, no matter where we call home. These are the stories of how businesses flourish and how his called to create continues to this day. Come for the content. Stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Faith Driven Entrepreneur Africa primarily spotlights stories from across the continent, but we are also part of a local movement that is globally connected. In addition to new stories, we'll mix in some of the best from around the world So, we can also learn from others. Today's episode is one that was recorded with Barty Lawrence in South Africa, and we are excited to share it with you. Barty is the CEO of Westplan, a garbage collection company based in South Africa that is working to divert the vast majority of customers' waste stream from landfills and convert it into valuable, recyclable resources. They employ hundreds of local workers, care for their families, and invest in local schools to educate the next generation of South African leaders. Barty joins us today to talk about how stewarding God's creation led him to give God a majority ownership stake in the company. Listen in to find out how he made that happen.
2: Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Uh, It is an amazing day and we have an amazing guest, Bertie Lawrence, who I just told, uh, I will not try to mimic his accent, even though it's very difficult, has joined us today. And we also have a special guest, Daryl Heald is joining us as a guest host today. Daryl, how are you today?
3: Hey, William, doing well, excited to be here today, especially to hear from our friend in South Africa.
2: I know. It's amazing. Well, it's amazing to have you, and then Bertie and Daryl have known each other for a while, so it's going to be fun to tease out this story. I know our audience is going to hear something that they probably haven't heard before, and, and we hope that the Spirit can use Bertie's story and what God, uh, him and his faithfulness uh, to encourage and inspire uh, other faith-driven entrepreneurs as we're listening. So, uh, Bertie, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, William. Thank you for inviting me.
2: We're, we're happy to have you. And, you know, as we get started, one of the things we just always love to do is just to hear a little bit about you, who you are, where you came from, where you grew up, how you ended up becoming a faith-driven entrepreneur, and, you know, how you ended up sitting in that chair today with us telling the story.
1: Thank you, William. Well, first of all, I'm a son of God, God Almighty, the creator of universe and everything in it. And I'm married to a beautiful, gentle Canadian lady, and she calls South Africa home for 15 years already and four champion kids. But I was really born and raised in a small mining town in the southeast of Johannesburg uh, in the 70s. I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and that was during apartheid, South Africa. It was a very difficult time for South Africa. And... Everything that we're facing today is still legacy of apartheid and a lot of things that we do today is still trying to fix all the wrongs of the past. So I grew up as a young teenager seeing all these wrongs and I just thought it might be wise just to give a little bit of context about apartheid and what apartheid is and was. But it was really a governing system that denied all non-white people any decent education no voting rights and no rights for any managerial jobs. So you can understand what that means over a period of 40, 50 years of uh, a father that needs to work in the best job he can get as a mine, as a general worker, or in a factory or a construction company. And you know, father teaching his son, this is the best that you can ever be. Just try and be the best general worker that you could ever be. And hopefully you could become a supervisor of general workers and you know if you just keep perpetuating that over decades a whole lot of anger happens a whole lot of hurt and a narrative of blaming so that's that's the south africa that i grew up in and i saw how apartheid came to an end i saw how a new era was born for south africa uh, i saw how nelson mandela was released from prison and how he was elected as the first democratically elected uh, president and uh, i started seeing how the entire country started rallying together to try and correct the wrongs of the past. And it's been two decades and we're still doing that. But it almost feels like we fail every decade. Our failures are bigger than the, than the decade before. So that's the context where I grew up. And personally, I was a very insecure teenager when I grew up because my father never told me that I had what it take. He never told me that he loved me. So I always grew up never knowing what that real lack was that I had inside of me, but I always knew that I just do not feel complete. Of course, I ran to alcohol and women. Um, I was also a very good salesman when I was in school and I very quickly learned that I could make money. And that's when I realized, but hold on, money will maybe fill that gap and it will make me popular amongst my teenage friends, which it did, of course. But luckily I got saved. Very early in my 20s, it's just after the one relational failure of the next, I realized that I just do not have what it takes to keep a life together. And uh, I surrendered to Jesus at the age of 23 in the late 90s. And it was wonderful. It almost felt like it was the beginning of a healing journey for me. Shortly after that, I found a mentor that saw something in me. And they decided to help me to build a business because I knew I wanted to be a businessman because I could sell stuff. And I thought if I can sell something, I can build a business. I started a business in 2004 and here I am still running that same business.
2: Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for walking us through that. I'm going to ask you if you would, would you maybe spend a few more minutes for our listeners? I mean, I, I hear that. I've, you know, I've read a little bit about apartheid maybe, but could you maybe spend a few more minutes on what it was like growing up? Like, what did you sense in the air? What did you sense was was there? And, and sort of from your perspective, because we have a, a listening audience as a white man, right? What did it feel like at school? I, I don't know. I don't even know the right question to ask, but I'm just really curious for, I've just always learned, obviously, from people in different worldviews and they grew up in different scenarios than me. And I just want to give you kind of an open mic for a couple more minutes to say just kind of what were some of those experiences like for you?
1: William, you know, when you become a teenager, when you hit your 10, 11, 12, 13 age, you start asking questions. You notice things around you. You notice that there are no black kids in your school. You notice the kids that you play sport against are all white. You notice that when you drive out of your town you drive into a uh, we call them townships but it's really shanty towns and you just see black people there and you see that the people who work in the white people gardens are black people and uh, you don't see black people driving cars they're driving bicycles and their clothes don't look decent so you notice all these things and then you start asking your questions you ask your parents these questions but why you see beggars at the traffic lights are only black people and not white people. And you ask them, but why are beggars only black people? And then they answer you, but you can see it's um, almost a, a, a governmental brainwashed answer that does not make sense for a 12 or a 13-year-old. And that's when you start realizing, but hold on, here's something wrong with the entire system. And you listen to adults, the way they talk around the barbecue around the socials about them and us and you ask yourself but we're all one we're all one country why is there a, them and us and you know you ask these questions and you get answers that just do not make sense and uh, to take it one step further for most of these answers there was a biblical scripture to quote to justify the system of apartheid and um You see black people doing the hard labor, almost like the Hebrew slaves that built the infrastructure of Egypt. I saw how the black people, uh, the majority of South Africa was black people, were building the infrastructure for the minority. And something inside of me just said, that is wrong. It just doesn't make sense. It's not sustainable. And then you start watching news. You start understanding what you hear on the news. You start hearing the conversations in the kitchen and the din- around the dinner table with your parents. Really, as the tension started building up of the masses of South Africa, just saying enough is enough. We want voting rights. And you start hearing those conversations, the family conversations, the fear in it. Of here is a massive bloodbath revolution coming and we just do not have answers anymore. And I saw all of that. And the fear also gripped me. But then I saw the miracle. Of a peaceful negotiation between Nelson Mandela and the ruling president F.W. de Klerk back then. And all of a sudden, very quickly, the tension released and there was an election. All the black people were granted voting rights and the ANC, which is the party that represented them, won. And there was joy and there was fear all at the same time. The wealthy whites that were able to flee, fled. Packed up all their goods and they fled to everywhere else in the world because they believed that all the white people in South Africa were going to be murdered. But the believing communities rejoiced and they sang hallelujah. And you started hearing these messages of the fearful and the jubilant all more or less in the same space. And something inside of me said... That's a miracle, what happened here. And it really was. Looking back now, it was a miracle. And very shortly after that, in the 90s, we just had a great leader, in Nelson Mandela, who was very verbal in his communication. He understood the fear of the white communities, and he spoke to us on public television, where he made very, very bold statements of how he will protect us. And he made very bold statements to the angry majority black community in South Africa saying, we need our brothers, our white brothers in our country to help us rebuild this country. And you just hear that propaganda coming from him. And eventually you start believing this is going to turn out to be something beautiful. And that's why we named it the Rainbow Nation, because we really believed there's something beautiful that was going to come out of it. And we still hold on to those hopes and those dreams because it's still beautiful but it just sometimes feel like it's taking too long. Mm. But our timing is never the same as God's timing.
2: Amen. Thank you so much for, you did such a beautiful job of taking us into some of those moments. And I just thank you for walking through that for our audience. And I'm interested in how did all of those experiences impact you as an entrepreneur, as someone who was studying what God wanted you to do, right? And, and what was your part of that story? That was being written in South Africa. Where did God find you and and push you to an entrepreneurial journey?
1: So I knew that I wanted to be a businessman for selfish reasons. I wanted to get rich. And that's the end of that story. So I pursued that dream of becoming rich. And I could see how this new South Africa attracted so much foreign investment. This was truly the hope for the continent. And we achieved amazing GDP growths and I just realized I am in this ecosystem that is filled with growth and I have these skills to sell and I wanna be a businessman. But as I went on doing this, I noticed that the people that we employ in our business are poor and there are many of them general workers that work for a very, very low salary. And that started bothering me. Now the salary we pay is equal to what competitors in the market pay for those laborers. And when we pitch for contracts with clients, a big chunk of our service costs is labor costs. So if we overpay, then we're not competitive and we can't grow. So we were forced to pay the same salary, but we realized we can do much more. So it's just an awareness that grew over time that while we employ poor people, we have the power of influence over them more Than what political leaders have, and more than what the church could ever have. While they work in our business, we found out that the one that receives a salary submits quite easily to the one who pays the salary. So the one who pays the salary has tremendous influence. And we, I thought, let us use that and help people learn how to better themselves so that they can build a better future for themselves. And all of that comes down to education, the way you think. Because mm-hmm. if you could educate yourself, you can acquire more skills or a higher skill. You can bring it to your workplace. You can get more responsibilities and then a higher salary. I've personally worked with some of the guys in the early years. And I've seen once they get that, it's almost as if you've put them onto a perpetual path out of poverty. Because he's connected the dots. He said, oh, I see how this thing works. It's not a secret any longer. Bring more value take more responsibilities and more money and then repeat and that made me excited that we have this influence that we can help people out of poverty
2: mm, amen yeah you're sharing a gospel you know you're sharing the good news with people that you know you're holding this good news that they don't know about yet and educating them what a beautiful reflection of the gospel and kind of where god placed you and and where he put you and And one of the unique things I've heard you talk about before that I'd love to have you share with our audience is, you you set out to build a business also where God would be a shareholder. And could you tell us a little bit about what that looks like to you, what that felt like to you as you dug into that and prayed about that? What does it look like to make God a shareholder of Waste Plan?
1: Well, we need to understand how that started. First of all, if you have a really good mentor, And he's building a really successful business. All you need to do is just listen to him and do what he tells you. And that's what I did because I didn't know much. And what happens is if you enjoy enough success upon success, and if you do not have people around you that are willing to hold up a mirror to you so you can see who you're becoming, you will become proud. And I became very proud because I enjoyed tremendous success quite quickly in in the first years of the business. And I had to define later on to myself what is pride. And pride to me is the conversation with self that says that I am better than. And you can fill in the gap there with any name. I'm better than. And very quickly after that, pride leads to strife or strife. And striving says that I would like to be better than so and so. So it's a situation of measuring and. Seeing that you're better than some, but then coveting the success of others. And that just put you on the spiral of destruction, which I didn't see. I didn't see it coming, but God did. And uh, luckily, he rescued me there again shortly after this business, about seven years in. We started losing a tremendous amount of money, buckets full of money. And it came as such a shock because I'm his blue-eyed boy. I'm so successful. What happens? Why all of a sudden all these losses, whatever I worked so hard for over seven years, could be gone in a moment? And I found myself in my garage a year later on my knees, crying out to God to have mercy on me and to rescue me from the situation and repenting of my pride and my arrogance and my striving and building it in my own strength. And he did. He came and he rescued me. Uh, William, it was very shortly after that, the situation turned. It was miraculous and it turned. So you could imagine early the next year, I was still very raw and I was covered in the fear of God. And uh, just asking him, how do you want me to build this thing out now? I do not ever want to make the same mistakes again. And I felt God say to me, he wants me to give away. Well, what did I have? I had debt and I had an insolvent company. And I asked him if he wants that. But I heard God say the word equity to me. And that's a very interesting word. Now, the founder of a business always believes that the equity value is hundreds of billions. The balance sheet could show deep zeros. But the founder always believes it's worth more. And I think God went after the very thing that could become a mammon stronghold in my life. That very thing that I believe I'm building something of massive equity value. He said he wants that and it was very difficult but at the same time i knew this thing is actually really worth a a minus so i made a deal with god i said okay god i'll give you shares but you got to show me how and i asked him if he how does he feel about 30 percent and he remained quiet and then i gave him 30 and that's where we are so from 30 very shortly after that we grew to 51 because I immediately saw, I started understanding the benefits of inviting God Almighty, the creator of everything. You have him as a shareholder in your business. The value proposition is just so big. At first, you don't know it. But once I did it, I started realizing what I did. And I realized, but hold on, let's let's give him controlling stake. And then I can sit back and watch this thing grow. And that's where we are today.
2: Mm. Amen. I I love parts of that story that you know. Of course, because we have a God that runs after us harder than we could imagine, that He rescued you. But hearing a practical, uh, it it just gets me every time when you hear of God coming to the rescue. And uh, our audience knows I cry a decent amount, so you know I may cry again now. But it's just a beautiful story of you submitting, and and you know, and it's not a prosperity gospel. It's it's a reality of the Scripture right? That like when we do turn to the Lord and when we do repent and we do give it back to him, like he's there and he's there for everyone listening and not everyone's in that spot. People have already done it, but man, if you are, run to him, be with him. Um, It's an amazing story. And, and, you know, I would imagine the, the way God wants to run in their business or, or be a shareholder may look different, but to submit that to him, is the point, right?
1: Yeah. William, I think he's going after the one thing that he knows will drive the biggest wedge between you and him Hmm. sometime in the future. And he's going to go after that thing. And all he's really asking is just just surrender, just surrender, whatever it is, just surrender. (laughs) I've got this. I know your future better than you will ever know. Just let me do this with you. And it will be so worth it. That's all
2: he's asking. Amen. I'm going to turn it over to Daryl after one more question here. I realized, of course, we got so excited about the wisdom you have here. I forgot to ask, you know, could you tell our audience a little bit of what Waste Plan is, uh, how many employees you have, what you guys do in South Africa? I think the name tells a little bit. So I think people are already on the edge of their seat knowing a little bit, but could you tell us a little bit more just about the business and who you try to serve and how you try to care for God's world uh, through the business?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, most companies have waste as part of their production or service offering, and we found that that's normally an afterthought, and it's a liability. It's an ever-increasing cost that somebody somewhere has to manage, but there's no specialist or an expert or dedicated person to do that. So, we offer a service to companies, food companies, factories, hospitals, hotels, shopping centers. We will bring our personnel onto your site. We will segregate your waste we will divert as much away from landfill as possible. And as we divert the waste away from landfill, we turn it from a liability into an asset. And we have enough data to show it's an appreciating asset. So we take waste, we segregate it at the source in separate streams, we sell those streams. The value of those streams we sell increase in value year on year. We return the biggest part of that value back to the client. But what happens in the process is that person that did that sorting and the handling of the waste, he realizes, but I I was part of turning a wasteful item that's a liability into an asset. And in that process, we generated new revenue. I earned a salary. And with that comes dignity because I was part of turning value out of something with no value. And that's the beautiful part of what's happening here. We have about two and a half thousand employees scattered over 10 cities. And we have about six hundred and thirty clients that we service. And uh, waste gets segregated from all these sites, moves into big processing centers, which we call recycling centers, where we do final sorting, we compress them and we sell them to the highest bidder. So we are waste traders.
3: I love that. Waste trader. That's a great <laughs> one. Hey Bertie, I always just love hearing the story. And, and you know my love for South Africa. I mean, it just We've had lots of great adventures, so this is a lot of fun to be, have a chance to tell more people just uh, how God's moving you know, in your life, in your business, in the country, things like that. So I want to take us back where we first met. I think our audience has already heard Bertie you know, is a deep thinker, and I just remember where we have a mutual friend. He invited you and Leslie to this journey of generosity. Why don't we just start there? What did you think about that and just the process that happened?
1: Yes, Daryl, it was mind-boggling to process all the information that was presented over that weekend. Now, I saw how very, very poor people gave everything in those videos and in those discussions. And I saw how excessively wealthy people did the same. But what struck me was that the richest and the poorest were equally happy. Joy, you know, joy that is deeper than what a dictionary can define for you. And I think that's what hooked me that, you know, I was chasing really after satisfaction all my life. And, you know, you think that wealth will give it and then you meet people and they'll tell you, no, it doesn't. But that weekend I realized, hold on, I think I got the secret here. This is the thing that I've been chasing after all my life. This deep satisfaction and joy comes only from a place of true generosity. And I was just trying to piece that together. What would that look like? For me when I leave this weekend. And I wanted to just take in as much as I possibly can while I'm there so that I have as much to work with when I would go back home on the Monday.
3: Thanks for sharing that. I know that's a hope and desire, you know, that all of us as entrepreneurs and investors that we understand that value proposition that it's more blessed to give than receive, and that we can truly, you know, live in that point of joy. So a couple of things though that I I just when I think about Bertie, I just, I love how you are walking out this journey. One of them is when we were driving home from the office to your house for a dinner one night and up ahead of us, there are some guys at the light who were begging for money and things like that. So take the story from there. I, w- I thought that was just, <laughs> I, mean, I forget the gentleman's name, but tell our audience just what you do. I mean, this is just like everyday generosity. I just love this
1: piece. Yes, Daryl. So the South Africa that I just told you about, I just want to give you a little bit more context. The unemployment level now sits at 38% unemployment. Mm. You know, the amount of school dropouts is ridiculous. Uh, Something like only 48% of people that start in grade one get to grade 12. So Mm. you could imagine the amount of people on the streets that do not have jobs. His name is Bennett. He's a beggar. He's bent over He was hit by a car, he broke his back, and he's never been able to get surgery. So he's bent over almost 90 degrees, and he's just at the traffic light on my way home, and he's got the brightest of smiles. So it's easy to be generous towards Bennett, but surprisingly, most people are not. So after the jog weekend, one of the fierce discussions that I think you see every time is, well, is it right to give to a beggar? He's just going to buy alcohol. And I remember that weekend, someone said it. I don't know who it was. So that person said, but it's his job to give account for the money he received. It's not your job to give account mm. on his behalf. Mm. So just give. Your job is to give account for the money God gave you and the way you live generously with that. So I just decided, my wife and I, we decided we are going to give to every beggar. We went out We started changing money to have as much money in our cars as possible. We quickly ran out of money, Daryl. So that plan didn't work well. We then became a little bit wiser and we broke it up into smaller denominations of money, and so that you can give less but give to more people. And Bennett is just one of the beneficiaries of that decision. And he loves seeing my car. And uh, if he hasn't seen my car for a while, especially now during COVID, you know, if I drive past there on my way to the office and he sees me, he will stop all the traffic <laughs> yes. just to get to me because he knows he's
3: going to get something. Well, I just love the relationship y'all have. I mean, it was obviously that was, I mean, that's happened dozens and dozens of time. You've talked about education and the importance of education. Uh, Let's talk about what you and Leslie as you know, from a kingdom investing side, we think about, you know, this giving, what are y'all, you know, particularly passionate about? What are y'all excited about giving to right now? Daryl, it's really the education,
1: the education stats in South Africa are alarming. It is a bomb that will explode if nothing happens. There's another stat about 4% of kids that start in grade one will pass maths in grade 12, 4%. So you have 96% of your population that cannot count. So the quality of jobs and the amount of jobs that they'll get is few. So the amount of unemployed people, the volume of people that are unemployed is growing year on year. And it just doesn't make sense that one should live in this country and think that that's okay. So we put as much effort into educating people and just basic skills. So first of all, Niko Capital is the foundation that we formed really is the structure we formed where we could have God as a legal shareholder in our company. And then Niko Capital uses all its funds and it throws it into schooling. So there's a few schools up here in Pretoria and Johannesburg Christian schools. So we try and throw all our skills in there, all our networks, all our relationships, and as far as possible that we could use our resources and our assets. And money is just a very small part of that. The lady that works in our kitchen, who cleans our house, that looks after our kids when we're not here. Mita, we try and do as much as we can for her and her kids in terms of housing, schooling. The gospel, help them understand the gospel, help them live the gospel and preach the gospel in their communities. The guy works in our garden. And we just found that that is practical. And in South Africa, if one just starts there, you'll stay busy for the rest of your life just there. You do not have to go after big things, just those immediate lives around you influence them and help them educate themselves.
3: Yeah, thank you for sharing some of that. It was a real joy for me to see some of those schools with you on that last trip. I mean, how many students do you have in these schools now? Daryl,
1: there's about a thousand students, I think, uh, in all the schools where we're involved. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly drawn to one school where there's 200 kids. It's in the middle of Mammalodia Township. It is a Christian private school. It's private because there's no other support coming from the government. So it's really donations. And some of the parents are paying fees to keep their kids in there. But it's beautiful what's happening there. It's kids that have All the odds stacked up against themselves. If they did not go to the school, they would go to one of our failing government schools that are producing the results I've just mentioned. So here we're creating an environment for them where they have great education, great principal with a great teaching group. But we teach the gospel. We model the gospel. We show the gospel. We model grace. We model generosity. And we try and show them what good fatherhood looks like. Because that's Mm. the one big lacking thing in the poor communities. There are no fathers there. So the way I see it is here are 200 kids that will become 200 families one day. And 200 families will have a chance at success in South Africa because of this school. And that on its own is so rewarding. Because you look in the eyes of these kids and you interview them and you hear what they say. And you hear kids say, I need to live generous with my fellow students. That comes from a kid that has nothing and that's beautiful because that kid gets it and that kid is going
3: to enjoy success and joy because they get that concept of generosity that's great thanks for sharing that bertie you, you also have a real passion for leadership you know someone that you're studied this for your own self as a leader your company and your community and your family and things tell us a little bit more about these what's driven you to do these interviews with other leaders there in south africa
1: daryl I just started with interviewing my mentor, he was getting old, and I needed to have some video footage of what he's taught me over the years. So I asked him 10 questions. Some of the questions are ones I've never had time to ask him, and some were questions that I asked that deeply impacted me. So I asked him that, I took a video of it, we broke it into 10 little snippet videos. And the purpose was really just to release it into our organization. But the value was so much that we thought, let's rather just start a YouTube channel called Stories That Inspire. We post on there and then for anyone to enjoy. And I thought that is wonderful. I asked God if he wants me to continue with that, and I felt peace to go find another leader like him. And my deal with God was if he had to keep sending me people that are willing to be interviewed by me, I will continue to do so. And we are on series uh, six, I think, right now. And I'm just enjoying hearing from these people because everyone who has achieved a level of success are always keen to share it. They're not stingy. Everyone who has had success wants to share it. So that's what I do. I go ask them and I try and package it in snippets that other people can enjoy and use and benefit from.
2: Amen. Bertie, as we come nearer to a close, I want to give you an opportunity just to maybe speak to just kind of an open mic a little bit again, to talk to the entrepreneurs out there that may be listening. Any, any other advice that you might have about, you know, just how God's taught you, you know, to lead a business from a faith first perspective.
1: Thank you, William. Yes. This all comes from the journey of starting to surrender. And I have developed a conviction that our father wants us to steward his stuff on his behalf. Now we've heard this. This is old techy. But if we can just pause for a moment and think, if your earthly dad had assets worth hundred billion dollars and he asks you, my son, would you take over the running of this company while I'm alive? Then what would you do? How would you do that? Well, the first thing is you'll be very fearful and respectful when as you step into those very big shoes. But you will. Honor him in every one of your decisions. You will seek him in every one of your decisions. And you almost check in with him daily. And our father, the creator of the universe, has created resources that generates about 90 trillion dollars of GDP every year. We're his sons and we're his daughters. And he wants us to steward these assets on his behalf. So why do we get caught up so much in what we create and what we hold on to? There's such a big journey out there, a big calling for us. And I almost feel like our father is sitting on the edge of his seat waiting for us to surrender and let go of our stuff and the power that our stuff has over us and say, God, I'm your son and I'm here to steward your assets on your behalf for your glory. God showed me in Romans 8 from about 19. And this is my translation of that, the all of creation is waiting eagerly for the sons of God to stand up and reveal themselves and say, here we are. And then to do what? To rescue creation out of the bondage of corruption and to then steward it in a way that gives glorious liberty. What is glorious liberty? It's is—it's a freedom that gives glory back to him. And I think that's our calling as sons and daughters. So when he gives us assets to steward companies and people, He wants us to steward it in a way that it brings liberty, freedom to the resources, the earth that we're stewarding, the animals, the plants, the rivers, the everything, the resources in it, and the people. And all of creation should go glory to Father because of the way that we, his sons, are stewarding his assets. And I just think it's such a big calling that we cannot waste time to get caught up in stuff and status you know, and accolades. And I just felt that the only way that I was able to do this is to reach a place of complete surrender. So when I gave God shares in the business and I gave him control, it almost felt like that was absolutely necessary for that to happen before I could really steward things on his behalf. Before then, it was all for me. It was for me, my family, their inheritance, my legacy, and all that nonsense.
2: Oh, I love that. The uh, it wasn't something you begrudgingly did, or maybe you did, but it was necessary. It's like that was the only way for it to work, actually, in sort of God's world, is to take that step of obedience.
1: Yeah. And I want to add one more thing. The second point to that is the idea of generosity, how do we live generous lives? I realized that our father is a generous father, and the father of lies is a stingy father. And selfishness and stinginess come from the fear of scarcity and generosity comes from the understanding of abundance and abundant provision from our father. And it's almost as if we could live our lives in either one of these two veins. You can't be in both. And when you realize that my father is a father of abundance and I can share my resources abundantly with the ones around me and I can live abundantly gracious with the people that i lead employ my family my friends my neighbors then you see the lie of the enemy but until you make that choice you live in the lie of the enemy you always think especially in south africa in a declining economy how can i put away as much as i can now so that my kids will be okay the day when i die and i think we all live with that fear that is the father of lies that are whispering those lies into our ears and He whispers little lies. He puts little packets of lies and fear around our lives, neatly wrapped as gifts, tiny little packets. And as soon as you take the one and you open it up, you give him legal right to enter in and cause havoc. And you cannot live in faith and fear. So faith says my father is abundant. He's my provider. And he will look after me and my family. And fear says it's up to me to put away as much as I possibly can now so that my kids and my family are going to be okay one day.
2: Amen. I almost hate to ask another question. wonderful place to end, but we do have to get to our closing question because we always ask it. And so usually I would cut myself off, but thank you for sharing that. And our closing question, what we'd love to ask is just where God has you in his word today, where he has you in his scripture. And that's something that, you know, you could have been meditating on for a season. It could be something God revealed to you this morning, Uh, but just to let our audience in to where God's walking with you in his holy word today.
1: William, I want to share something that happened with me over the last week. I got busy. I had to travel to Cape Town, came back, went on a mountain bike race, traveled again. And this morning when I sat down and I opened my word, I saw that for the last eight days, I did not have a quiet time. So the last eight days I got so busy that I didn't sit with my father and I speak with him. And I realized the day before I exploded in a meeting, Because I acted out of my flesh, out of anger. And when I sat with God, I repented for not seeking Him daily. I allowed busyness to come and take me away from Him. And I felt the Father showed me the picture that the enemy wants us just to move away from our Father slowly. He'll never come with a big bang. He'll give away His plan, He'll come slowly. He'll distract us with the things that He knows will move us away from our Father. And if He can get us away for long enough, then he introduces stage two, which is lies and fear, because if we've been away from our father long enough, he knows that we will not hear his Holy Spirit in the moment and he introduces little lies. And once we take them, he comes in with a lot of lies. And after a week, I was operating fully in my flesh, making fleshly decisions and exploding at people and making bad decisions. And that's just a fresh revelation that if we, I do not sit before my father every day and I ask him advice. And if I don't sit in His Word and I soak into His presence and I listen to the Holy Spirit, I do not care how long I've been a Christian, I will fail. I will act in the flesh and I'll make bad decisions and I'll disappoint them.
2: Amen. Amen. So grateful for you joining us today. So grateful for your story. So grateful for sharing what God's done in and through your obedience, and and at times your disobedience. And thank you for sharing both of those and how he still comes to the rescue through all of those examples. So grateful for you and and grateful for your story.
0: Thank you, William. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners tuning from over 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a foundation group with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch, in person or online. You can meet an hour a week with your peers from your backyard across the continent or on the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at africa.faithdrivenentrepreneur.org all this is made possible through the special help of all our friends thanks to the volunteers leading entrepreneur groups and watch parties to spark this movement in your city and country we are grateful for you and hope you'll continue to share this with friends